Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Stephen Hansen, Associate Editor. Today we have a special report, our second quarter financial markets preview. Stephen has spent the past few weeks speaking with investors and bankers, and lo and behold, he's found some spring shoots of optimism among the grinding downturn for biotech markets. But first, this episode of BioCentury This Week is brought to you by BioEquity Europe. Join us in May in Milan. What could be better than that? Uh, it's BioCentury's 22nd BioEquity Europe. The conference returns to in-person networking for the first time in three years. So get your business cards ready. You can schedule one-to-one -one meetings with more than 130 biotechs selected by our editorial team to present. You can debate strategies for navigating through this capital crunch that we're about to talk about. And you can also talk about the industry's talent crunch over two plus days of strategic panels and workshops. Find your next investor, your next partner, or your next portfolio company at this exclusive C-suite event, May 16th through 18th in Milan, Italy. We look forward to seeing you there. Register today at bioequityeurope.com. All right, Stephen, thanks for joining us, waking up early today to join Simone and I. Uh, biotech markets have been down for the past year and moved into a bear market late last year. What's been weighing on the sector? Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Good to join you guys. So as you said, you know, biotechs have been well, everyone knows biotechs have been performing badly, you know, coming into this year, and that didn't change. It actually really only got worse in the first quarter. Looking across the various indices that we cover, it was anywhere from 12 to nearly 20% down in the first quarter. And there was really no part of the part of the sector that was spared. We had everything from small caps being down to, you know, even the large caps being down 12% compared to the broader markets that saw maybe five to nine percent down performance. So really was a bad quarter overall. And one of the things that we were looking at the contributing factors that a lot of investors pointed to was a real bad run of biotech catalysts. This is something that sometimes you have good, good outcomes, sometimes you have bad, but here we've just seen a particularly bad run of outcomes in, in the first quarter. Uh, we went back and looked at 88 separate catalysts that happened in the first quarter. And about 65% of them were clearly negative outcomes. And when you then looked at the clinical failures and clinical holds, these accounted for nearly 70% of the negative outcomes. I mean, some of them being fairly big catalysts as well, you know, whether it was Nectar and BMS's IL-2 failure in melanoma phase three or Kodiak's KS-301 failing in phase three for wet AMD you know, just a lot of these catalysts that people were, were hoping would, would provide some, some reason to be optimistic about the sector that just really didn't come through. So I think there's probably at some point going to be a lot of analysis about this string of negative catalysts. First of all, is it really more negative catalysts than it was, let's say, a year ago when things were going well, and maybe it is. But one thing that you'll ask yourself is whether there's a regulatory influence here. Are regulators tightening the belt a little bit more? 
Another might just be the swing of innovation. Uh, there's a lot of innovation after the last however many years. Those products are making it through the pipeline. We see catalysts earlier and earlier now, like in phase two, it used to be just at the end of phase three. And, you know, not all of these things are going to work. This is a tough business. So I think it's going to be interesting, you know, if you're just thinking that it pegs on the catalysts, and we can talk about that because it probably doesn't just peg on the catalysts, um, whether the string of negative catalysts has any sort of fundamentals underneath it that can be interpreted by drug developers in ways that they can change their programs or change their odds of success. Yeah, no, I think that that's a good point, Simone. And I think we all know how difficult uh, and how risky this business is in the first place, right? So seeing more negative outcomes than positive, you know, probably should not come as a surprise. And also given the fact that we have so many more companies in the sector now, right? arguably you're going to have more of these catalyst events that are going to be happening. And so risk plus increased number, you might think then you're going to have more of these anyways. So maybe it shouldn't come as a surprise, but then when you add on top of that, some of these other factors that investors brought up, like we're all aware of the fall off we've seen in financings, which I mean, looking at the numbers we had for our preview, you know, it was 85% down on IPO capital, 80% down on follow-ons. Again, both of those coming off what was a record, <laughs> 1Q21, right? So it has to be taken with a pinch of salt. But um, it, it all sort of combines to get at some of the things that underpin what often I think is viewed as maybe much more of a qualitative thing when we talk about sentiment and having sort of a, a negative sentiment versus an optimistic sentiment. And obviously, we can't divorce it from the broader markets. Generalists have now more other places to go, things that they're interested in. True. We all know that sort of biotech really had it ridiculously good during the pandemic in that regard. That's right. That's right. Yep. And that wasn't the only factor that, that investors pointed to either. The other thing that came up that I know there's been a lot of discussion and debate around lately was, was M&A. And we went and looked back to see if we could look at whether there was some way to kind of quantify this and you know maybe the maybe a simplistic way of doing it was just looking at one billion dollar takeouts and we had been on this run where there was um i think it was january 19th uh was when ucb announced it was acquiring zogenics and we hadn't had uh, another billion dollar takeout until yesterday so it was a run of 84 days uh between those two announcements which if you look back for five years if you just go back to the start of 2017 that's the third longest stretch without having, having a large M&A deal for the sector. Yeah, and, and yesterday, the deal being uh, GSK taking out Bay Area Biotech Sierra, we almost had $2 billion deals as Halozyme did a $900 million plus deal as well. I know it's right on the heels of those deals, Stephen. Do you expect this to be the breakthrough that that turns things around? You know, we've had a few other things that have kind of looked nice. Like we had, um, I believe it was maybe last week or the week before, we had a couple good-sized follow-ons that were announced that priced well, and now you have a couple takeouts. Obviously, people are still talking about the fact that you have so many companies that are still at low valuations. We still have this elevated number of biotechs that are, you know, even trading below cash. I believe our number was around 8% at the end of the first quarter, which it was way worse about mid-quarter. But, you know, towards the end of the quarter, it had gotten a little bit better. But that's still, you know, a sizable portion of the sector that's 
trading below the, the money they have sitting on their balance sheet. So really got to think about it in context of the way we spoke on the pod earlier in the week, the way Jamie Rubin talked about it. She's CFO at EQRX, but obviously a longtime analyst previously at Goldman Sachs. What are the reasons that companies do M&A where, you know, the acquirer, there's no real M in M&A, of course, it's just A. Um, So, you know, it's usually we are looking at big companies, big farmers, a lot of the time, especially for the billion dollar plus ones. And the way she puts it is they are looking to fill a patent cliff. They're not looking to do good for the sector. Nobody does the deals on that ground. And, you know, when I previously talked with a head of partnering at one of the major pharma companies, they said to me, you know, you don't do a deal because it's cheap. You do a deal because you need the technology or because it makes sense strategically. And so those companies, the point that Jamie was making was that what their needs are to fill a patent cliff. And while there's a lot of great innovation among the biotechs that are hoping to get taken out, none of them or very, very few of them can solve that actual problem. So the assets that they're looking for aren't abundant. And so you're not going to see abundant M&A is her point. However you think about that, I think it is always important to remember they have considerations which are not to rescue biotech. That is not their goal. Yeah, that's a fair point. And the other thing that I found particularly interesting about her comments were around the pace of innovation and how that impacts big farmers' decision-making. Because you know if you see the pace of innovation moving so much faster, you can see the logic in, in there being some hesitancy behind, well, do we really want to buy this? You know, if you're looking at a platform technology or you're looking at a new modality, do we really want to buy this technology now when two years from now, there might be a huge breakthrough that makes it all that much better and where our technology we just paid $3 billion for is no longer relevant. I, I just find that an interesting aspect of the fact that, you know, we all think of innovation moving faster and improving as being a great thing, but it's almost like it has its own limiting factor when it comes to how farmers think about M&A in this sense. Absolutely. I thought that was very interesting. We know that there's a lot of external innovation at the pharma companies, but the idea that innovation is moving so fast that they can't necessarily stay ahead or keep up with all the science. And so they don't want to make bets and then have sort of innovation obsolescence, find that something better came along in a couple of years. So, yeah, I think there are a lot of movers behind this. And tell us, Stephen, some good news. Yeah, so this was the the spring shoots that Jeff referenced. I think yeah, what that, were so, those spring shoots? <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thing that I think is, is interesting is that despite all of these, you know, negative outcomes strung together, despite no financings, despite, you know, no M&A, basically from the beginning of February until the end of the first quarter, the broader biotech sector was trading in line with the broader markets. I mean, it was actually trading a little bit up. I mean, we had the uh, the XBI was up about 5% from January 27th. So wait. BioCentury 100 was up about 5%. So the good news is that biotech is no longer worse than the general markets. <laughs> That's right. It's, it's no longer just yes, as bad. It's just regular a, bad, not extra bad. That's right. Sorry. It's 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 a relative good, <laughs> but I think it's still it's still you know it's still good because for the last fourteen months it had been going in two opposite directions, right? Where the broader markets had been either flat or moving up, and biotech had been moving down. And so now we're seeing biotech trading in line with those broader markets, which I think it's very early still, but it almost looks like it's sort of 
developing a bit of a floor for this bear market to where I had some people being, I don't know what the term would be before being a little bit less than cautiously optimistic. They were basically saying, you know, this kind of at least creates a starting point from which if things go well, you could potentially see a bit of a recovery. What kind of feeds into that is also the fact that we actually saw some positive fund flows in the first quarter with a lot of that coming in the back half of the first quarter. So where those funds are flowing to is is much harder for us to see. Um, I had a lot of investors sort of speculating that it's probably going into the large caps now because that tends to be when people are moving back, people that rotate in and out of the sector, if they're going to rotate back in, they're going to tend to rotate back into the large caps first, which does make sense because if you look at like the performance of Vertex or Regeneron or some of the other big caps, they've actually done well. They're actually up, you know, year to date. So that's good. And what you tend to see is if things keep going well, that's when they might start to, you know, if they can make money on the large caps, then you might start to see some trickle down mm -hmm. uh, into some of the smaller names. I also feel like we're seeing uh, some venture investors look to Vipes a bit more, uh, venture investments in public companies. And just last week, we saw 5AM refuel. Not only did it raise a larger early stage venture fund, but they also raised an opportunity fund, which for the first time, Kush told me they will be investing in companies outside their portfolio. And he did mention without naming names or, or what their strategy was too, too deeply that they're seeing a lot of bargain prices out there. And I've got to believe that other investors are feeling the same way. I've talked to folks at Perceptive. They've said as much as well. So maybe that there is part of your trickle down, Stephen. And that's Kush Palmer, who is a managing partner at 5AM. Exactly. And uh, you can find that story on our website, along with Stephen's story. Now, Stephen's story focuses on the public side of things. Stephen, what's happening in venture? Is it as dire there? I feel like we're seeing record venture funds being raised. We're still seeing these mega rounds, which, you know, if you're not raising $100 million in your Series A, what, what are you doing? Um, what, what's the outlook on the venture side, Stephen? Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, we're, we're still seeing, you know, venture has kept moving on. We had about 9.8 billion raised in the first quarter was our number, which is pretty much in line with what we've seen across most quarters over the past sort of year, year and a half, other than 1Q21, which again, itself was a bit of an outlier. So that really doesn't seem to have lost any steam at all. But the interesting thing that I had several investors bring up that I think companies are going to have to navigate here is that with there being no real attractive IPO window available for a lot of these companies to get out with, the challenge some of these companies might face is that let's say you did a crossover round last year at a valuation that was a 1Q21 valuation. Because the way these valuations oftentimes work, especially for a crossover, is you look at what you think the public market valuation is that you would be able to achieve, you work in what step up you want from your crossover to the public valuation, and then that's how you get to the private valuation. Well, the valuation that they thought they would have been able to get a year ago on the public markets is very different from the valuation they would probably get now. So I think that's the challenge a lot of these private companies might face is that if they had raised money with the expectation they were going to go public in the next year, 
And then they're reaching this point now to where they have to make the decision, well, do we try and push through with an IPO that will be very challenging? Or do we do another private round? Either way, that valuation that the round was done on last year, as one investor told me, those valuations are just going to look ridiculous. So they're either going to have to negotiate and try and figure out, well, do they just have to swallow a down round on a private side? Or do they somehow convince, you know, do they just do a top up with existing investors? That's just a flat round. So I think there's going to be some, you know, some challenges for some of these companies over maybe the next three to six months, unless, you know, like I said, unless there is, we start to get some recovery and the IPO market starts to come back, you know, maybe they'll still be able to go out in the second half of the year. But um, if that doesn't happen, yeah, I think there could be some difficult decisions, especially later stage private companies, you know, that raised money last year. Excellent. Well, Stephen, thank you so much. If you haven't read his story yet, go to biocentury.com. You'll find it right on our homepage. And here's hoping those spring shoots uh, start to bloom. Fingers crossed. As we get deeper into spring, I know uh, it would be a, a relief for some of these uh, biotech companies that are putting out decent data and just not seeing their stock uh, go up. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Google, Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcast. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education. 